Happy 4th of July, everybody. Welcome back to the Rockcast. Jordan here. And uh, it's officially Saturday, July 4th, 2020. So happy birthday, America. And hope everybody's having a good weekend. This week's podcast, Robbie Denning joins me to do, uh, he's co-host on this one. And we have a cool guest, Sydney Lamb. Uh, from she's a wildlife biologist in northwestern Utah, and Sydney grew up doing uh, all the things that we all do, um, hunting, fishing, all that stuff. And now um, she's got her degree, and she is a biologist of basically all things. She does talk about it, but we kind of skipped the intro when we started talking to her. So um, thought I'd just hop on and do one. But this is a great podcast. Talk about mule deer and habitat and fawn survival and things like that. So hope uh, everybody has a good weekend and we're just going to dive right into the podcast. Native Utahn. Um, it's often, so in, in my family, it was a big kind of family culture thing that we always had a big buck camp every fall. And my mom, I was born in October and my mom always throws out this joke that I was infected by deer from the womb because <laughs> I came out and then everybody from buck camp came and visited. So in light of that, um, let's just say I recently got hired as a wildlife biologist for the state of Utah. I work up in the northwest corner for the most part, um, so like Box Elder County. And I'm still working on finishing up my master's degree in wildlife conservation from Brigham Young University. So that's a lot of the information that we're going to be talking about here on fawn survival came from my master's work, which is I was specifically focusing on the maternal influences on fawn survival, growth, and um, birth weight. So that's where a lot of the information we'll talk about here in the next little bit comes from. All right. All right. Where did you go to school? Uh, I went to Brigham Young University in Provo. So uh -huh. they have a pretty solid wildlife program that they're building right now. And they uh -huh. work a lot in conjunction with the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. So that's kind of how I got my start. All right. When did you graduate? I graduated with my bachelor's degree in 2018. And then I am still in the process of defending my master's thesis. So I'll probably finish that up within this year. So. All right. Well, hey, man, great, great to have some young blood in the department that's a, that's a hunter. And, you know, I find a lot of biologists are, but gosh, every once in a while I'll find somebody that's, that's not. And, you know, it doesn't make them any less of a biologist, but I, I just can tell I have a better connection with the ones that actually hunt and, you know, grew up in that culture and everything. Yeah, I do think it makes a difference. I mean, mule deer are important to me, you know, in my job, obviously, but also just because I've loved them and chased them for a long time. So let's go. Sydney, can you talk about who you're working for now and what your primary role is? Yeah. So I work for the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. I'm a wildlife biologist. So I work in the northwest corner of the state, Box Elder County. Basically, my main responsibilities are keeping track of big game populations and upland game populations. So I work with mule deer, elk, uh, bighorn sheep, mountain goats, pronghorn, sage grouse. We even have some sharp-tailed grouse legs up here in this part of the state. So it's a lot of population surveys, population modeling, um, working with landowners, hunters, non-consumptives, uh, and just trying to come up with the best ways to help populations thrive in, in my area. So that's a little bit about what I do. 
Cool. All right. Um, I, I was really excited to get you on the podcast because <clears throat> I don't know how much you followed my articles, but, and, and you know, I'm, I'm 50. All right. So, and, and I, I grew up around fishing game, uh, people, I was a volunteer for the Idaho fishing game for, for years, worked on some of those first neonate collaring studies that were done back in the nineties, back when we just had radio collars, not GPS collars. And, um, you know, coming from a hunting background myself and then being exposed to, you know, the actual science and biology around it, I, I, it was, it was quite an awakening for me. And it realized just how pervasive that what we call now bro science is in, in the hunting world. And, you know, many of the things I grew up believing about hunting, they were just faulty and, and, you know, God bless my uncles and all those, those old guys that took me hunting, but man, it was just all based on emotion and, you know, what they thought, and you know, there, there was just no science background. And so once I, once I was exposed to that, it was fascinating to me and, and it, it helped me become a, a better hunter because it helped me think correctly. And, um, you know, not that, you know, everything the, the game and fish, uh, departments do is, is always correct. And I always agree with it. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but once I, once I begin to understand that, you know, they're doing their best with, with the science that they have, and it, it, it helped me. And so that's why I'm pretty excited to have you on here, Sydney. And, um, um, you, you know, your whole background with, with, uh, fawn survival and, 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 and the collaring studies we're going to kind of base this on. Um, and we can expand from there. Uh, Jordan and I put together, uh, a list of questions. I think you got to review it, right? Yep. I've gone over it, made a couple notes. I think we're in for a pretty good conversation. So. All right. Well, Jordan, I'll let you start then. Okay. Uh, first thing we wanted to talk about was maternal influence on fawn survival. Great. Uh, let me give a little bit of background on this question. So. And tell us what it means. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I think that's a huge part of what you were talking about Robbie with transitioning from like bro science to biological science is under, you know, breaking it down. So the average person can understand some of the jargon we use in our, in our field, but kind of the background of this question. So my, uh, master's project, I collared fawns, newborn fawns on the cash unit. So in Northeastern Utah, We've done it for three years, so we've collared roughly 150 fawns during that time. And in conjunction with that collaring of those fawns, we started out in March of each of those years collaring adult does. And we'd fit them with GPS collars and then also um, insert something called a vaginal implant transmitter, which when the doe gives birth, then syncs up to her GPS collar and basically sends me an email and says she's given birth, which is crazy technology. It's amazing. Right. So we have like, because of her GPS collar, uh, we have an exact location of where that bit came out, which may or may not be, you know, the exact location of the fawn when we go in and find it, there's still a good search involved because fawns, you know, their major strength at that period of time is hiding. Right. But so we use um, those, GPS collars from the does and what are called bits, the vaginal implant transmitters to find these fawns and then collar them. And then we'd follow them through the first um, year of their life. So the way the fawn collars work is that they are expandable as the fawn grows. And then eventually they're supposed to fall off around six to eight months. 
But in conjunction with what we were doing with the fawns, we tried to actually recapture um, a subset of those fawns in December, so at six months, and put larger GPS collars on them so we could actually keep track of them for that full year. So that gives you a little bit of background of um, why I am talking about maternal influence on fawn survival. And the big thing to understand about the maternal influence is what we're looking at here is maternal condition or basically like a measurement of body fat, how fat that doe is. And we, we take those measurements when we capture them in March using an ultrasound. So we'll measure loin thickness, rump fat, and then there's a scoring system that's been developed. It's kind of like a, a palpation from the hip bones down to the tail which depending on how much of the spine you can feel dictates like what that body condition score is combined with, you know, the rump fat and the loin thickness. So we take that measure and call it just like maternal condition, which like I said, is basically just telling you how fat the dough is. So what I was trying to do with my study or with this study that I did in conjunction with um, a lot of cooperators, including, you know, the division, of wildlife resources here in Utah, BYU, the university I was working at. And then um, we had tons of support and funding from local conservation groups, including like the Mule Deer Foundation, Sportsman Fish and Wildlife, Rocky Mountain Elk, um, Safari Club International. So a lot of people came together and what we were trying to look at was uh, how this maternal condition or basically how fat the mom is influenced fawn survival. So that gives you kind of a background. Okay. Um, a couple so questions on that. You were you were talking about the uh, uh, palpitation down down the spine, just just to, to, to determine body fat, correct? Right. So um, there's some researchers. The main one being Rachel Cook, who developed something called body condition scoring. And so basically, you take that palpation I talked about along the spine plus the rump fat measurement that you do with the ultrasound and the loin thickness measurement that you do with the ultrasound. And you come up with a score that tells you kind of like the overall body condition of that. All right. Gotcha. And you know what? We do that in humans too. And that's thin caliper body fat testing. Sounds right. Like it's just been adopted to deer. And I've never heard of that before in deer. I, I always thought it was like a subcutaneous thing. You had to poke them or, um, you know, when, I, when I've worked at check stations, obviously these are on dead deer, you know, they open them up and they, they look at the fat on the bottom of their brisket. Uh, so, yeah, it sounds like her way is just a way to do it with uh, live deer. So that's great. And then I also talked, uh, heard you talking about the Mule Deer Foundation, um, amongst other organizations, um, uh, uh, providing funding for these projects. Did I, did I catch that right? That's correct. Yeah, we... Certainly none of these projects would be possible without funding from conservation groups. And I just really wanted to highlight that this, this type of work, this actual biological science that we're trying to do to help mule deer is a huge collaborative effort. And conservation groups like Mule Deer Foundation, Sports and Professional Wildlife, Rocky Mountain Elk, I mean, super important for us to be able to do this work. Absolutely. And that's why in a lot of my blogs, I tell everybody, go join the Mule Deer Foundation. Um, you know, I'm a lifetime member and you know, they, we've got to have those guys look what the Elk Foundation has done for elk. And, you know, we need to be supporting these. So there's another case in point right there. Did you have any questions on that, Jordan? Uh, I don't. Okay. So my question then, and, and, you know, I moved this one right to the top, uh, Sydney, I don't know if you were reading the commentary and the notes and everything, but, um, uh, you know, I just get asked this by a lot of guys and, um, and I've, and I've, I've, um, 
read about it in the whitetail world. I really think whitetail, you know, they, they've been hunted longer and studied longer. It feels to me like, like that group of, you know, hunters, biologists, they're like 50 years ahead of, of, of mule deer research. And, you know, I don't say that as a knock to our, our mule deer research at all. It's just, you know, whitetails were on the East Coast when the pilgrims landed. And, and so we just know a lot about them. And I, I've, I've read a few, I'll call them studies. I can't even remember if they were studies or just commentary from, from educated people that were saying that, that uh, you know, the, the buck's health and therefore his antler size are, are largely going to be determined, you know, from the womb into even that first, you know, six months of life, which is all tied back to the health of the doe. Would, would you agree with that or would you dispute that? Yeah, um, I would largely agree. A couple things I think I would highlight. So first of all, just to to back up a little bit and talk about, um, you know, the way that maternal condition is affecting fawns from the womb, like you said, we, we know from this research we've been doing that if you've got a fat mom, then you're going to be fatter at birth, which totally makes sense, right? If your mom's not healthy, there's no way she can throw a, a fat fawn. But we also are looking at how, if that maternal condition has effects long-term, you know? So if it's not just fat mom produces fat baby, but if fat mom also is influencing baby at six months. And I think that speaks to some of what you're talking about with this, how maternal condition is affecting antler growth and, and size in bucks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I have spent, there's a couple of papers that I've really delved into on this matter. One of them, like you mentioned, is a white tail paper. Um, it was written by Kevin Monteith, who's a big researcher out of the University of Wyoming. Yeah. Um, and it was on whitetails in South Dakota. And it's kind of like an intergenerational thing. What they did was took um, adult females from two different ranges in South Dakota. And one of the ranges was like, you know, healthy, high nutrient habitat. And the other one was a lower quality habitat. And then they brought them into confinement for, it was for a number of studies, not just for, you know, this looking at consequences of maternal effects on antler growth, but they brought them into facility and fed every doe a high quality diet. And what they found was that the does from the lower quality habitat, like before they came into the facility, mm-hmm. the bucks they produced in that first generation were smaller than the bucks from the high nutrient habitat. So is that smaller bodied, not as big, right? Smaller body, smaller antlers. And then by the time you get to the second generation bucks, the second generation bucks that came from the lower nutrient, like line of does, they were approaching the size of the higher nutrient bucks, but they weren't, they didn't quite make it in. They could never catch them. They never caught up and they certainly didn't pass them. Right. They like pretty, that's exactly right. They caught up, but they didn't pass them. So that's telling you there's some longer term effects, um, from maternal condition to these bucks. Now we have to keep in mind, and I think this is a huge, this is kind of a huge part of what I wanted to mention on this podcast was there are so many factors going into it. You know, oftentimes we get real rooted in on one thing, but it's important to remember that, um, while they found that maternal condition 
or maternal influences were really important in this study. Like you got to remember that anytime you're doing science on wildlife, there's so many factors that you can't control for that sure, could also be sure. something. So. Absolutely. But when you start reading it across multiple studies and Monteith's may have been one of them that I, that I read that I followed a lot of whitetail guys too. And I, I've heard this more than a few times that, that that's why I knew about it. And, and I'm with you, you know, there can be other driving factors and, you know, variables and, you know, lack of a control group. I, I get all that, but it, it, I guess, I guess what I wanted to point out is that, you know, and unlike in humans, it's good if your mama is fat when you're a deer. I mean, that's it's really what, that's not a bad thing. Right. And it, and it can carry all the way into the, you know, antlers and, 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 and you know, beyond that, we're going to talk a little bit more about reproduction rates and things like that too. Yeah. I, I've had actually friends ask me about that before, you know, cause we, <laughs> you just can't quite compare humans to, to deer for sure. You, and keeping in mind, you know, levels of fatness in deer are like 7% compared to, you know, overweight humans can be. That'd be a bodybuilder if it was a human. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I wanted to also point out, so there is one study I've read on um, effects of maternal condition on antler growth in, in mule deer. And that is actually a paper that came out of the same lab I graduated from at BYU by Eric Freeman, who's a, I think he's now a population yeah. biologist in Southern Southeast Idaho. Southeast Idaho, Pocatello region. Yeah. Know him well. So he uh, published a paper a couple of years back looking at the influence, like long lasting influence of maternal effects on specifically antler size. Mm -hmm. And the way they did that was they took harvest data for like that they found in multiple states. I know Montana, Idaho, Colorado, I think New Mexico, Wyoming. I mean, the Intermountain West, you know, for, and they had 29 years of harvest data, which included like antler measurements. And then they compared that with some weather metrics for that, those same time periods. And, and those specific metrics, I think were, let me see, I took a couple notes on it. Winter severity, spring and summer temperature and spring and summer precipitation. So they used those uh, weather metrics as sort of a a measure of condition because they couldn't, you know, physically measure the condition on each of those does because obviously that was a really long time period. And what they found was that for deer, at least antler size is influenced into adulthood by maternal condition. And specifically what they found was that mild winters prior to an individual's birth. So the birth of the buck mm -hmm. positively influenced the antler size of that individual throughout its lifetime. So if a buck is born, and like we had a very mild winter in 14, 15, if a buck is born in the spring of 15, so it was impregnated in the fall of 14, we had a very mild winter, what, what Freeman is saying is the, the chance of that buck having you know, better maximum development, we'll say in antlers, is, is, is better because of that mild winter that, that, that he was carried over, correct? Yeah, that's certainly very cool found in that paper so very cool very cool fascinating stuff yeah That's all right anything else on that subject no i think that about covers um antler size and maternal condition so all right hey jordan i'll let you take the, the controversial next one all right the predator effects on fawn survival and i think this is going to be way more of a factor than most people think 
Yeah, you know, predators certainly affect fawns, and I think we all know that. Um, from the research that we've been doing here in Utah, um, especially, I mean, I can speak mostly for the cache because that's where I really focused on during my master's degree, but the cash unit in Northern Utah is what you're talking about. Correct. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying. Um, big, big chunk of Northeast Utah up against the Wyoming border over to what about Logan? Yep. Okay. Yep. So what we found in that study was that most predator mortality happens early, like before they're six months old and they're getting killed by, I mean, cougars, bobcats, coyotes, even where we were, especially on the Eastern portion, more along that Wyoming border, I, so many fawns have fallen in badger holes. Like, wow. I don't know that the badgers are killing them necessarily, and, but I think the fawn falls in and then the badger sees like this free opportunity and drags it down into its hole. Like, I can't tell you how many times, probably each of the three years, at least three to four of our sample size of 50 per year, you know, mm -hmm. fell down a badger hole, which is a significant number and showed up in all three years of data collection, which is just nuts to me. Um, yeah. Anyway, kind of a interesting effect there. I wouldn't say it's necessarily the badgers being predatory, but maybe because there are so many, you know, the fawns fall in those holes and then they can't get out when they die. So, um, but yeah, I would say, predator mortality happens early before six months, like I said, and then really what you're looking at for the overwinter survival, you know, starting in December through the end of that first year of their life through June, it, a lot of times it's really dependent upon um, winter severity and a lot of them will die from malnutrition. And especially in a severe winter, even if you're seeing fawns die from coyotes, it's often what's called compensatory mortality, which means yes. they would have died anyway from the winter severity, but a coyote just happened to get them in their weakened state. And that's, you know, what we found when we went in to investigate mortality. That was so, one of the things right there, Sydney, that I learned as a young man was compensatory mortality. Because when you, you get around a coffee table with a bunch of hunters, they're just sure that for every, um, every coyote you kill, that you're going to save X number of fawns. Right. And when I began to understand that, what you said that, no, that fawn may have died anyways, because. And that was a hard one to wrap my mind around. And, you know, I, I, I guarantee I could do a big argument with a lot of hunters over that one, but you know, we see it across all big game species that, that there is always that compensatory effect in there. And just because you go in, you know, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I don't like coyotes. Um, they, they eat deer. I want less of them. I'll, I'll be clear about that right now. But, you know, we, we, we spent a lot of money on, on shooting coyotes in Southern Idaho one year and we found it, it just had a modest effect on it because of that compensatory um, mortality. Yeah. Uh, that's certainly a big thing. You know, I talked to a lot of sportsmen just doing my job and in doing this study, I worked with a lot of different sportsmen and a lot of people really think it's predators, 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 and, and they certainly play a factor in mortality, but there's a lot more that goes into it. And like you said, a lot of people think if you're, if you're killing coyotes, you're saving a lot of fawns. But interestingly, there's also a study that BYU is working on um, publishing right now that was done in the Monroe, Utah area. So like South Central mm -hmm. Utah, where they actually, um, they were catching fawns. This was a couple of years ago, I think 2009, I think starting in 2009, maybe through like 2013, something, sometime around there. 
And they split their study into two. And on one half, they did really intensive predator removal. And on the other half, they didn't. And when I'm talking intensive predator removal, we're not just talking about, you know, guys going out and shooting coyotes or trapping them. We're talking about wildlife services, helicopter, shooting. Super cubs. <laughs> yeah. Poison. Yeah, all that. So anything they can of, do. Right. Getting rid of everything on the landscape. And what they found from that study was if you can target, especially coyotes, in the right place at the right time with the right intensity. So we're talking about on fawning habitat right before or during fawning, the fawning season, so June, early July, then that can have an, and, and you're doing it at the right intensity. You know, we're talking, like you said, super cub, <laughs> killing everything that you see move. Let me correct myself. I don't think they use poison. I think that's like of yesteryear. I was thinking of a little a little M80 type trap that they use. So I, I want to make sure I don't get a call from a guy from Wildlife Services who says they're not poisoning them anymore. Correct. Yep. That's that's a good thing to point out. But I think, you know, the important thing to note there is that, um, oh, well, I'm with you, Robbie. Like, I'm okay if we kill a few more coyotes. I don't, <laughs> they rebound so well. And yeah they eat our deer and I'm, I'm happy about shooting them. But really, if you want to make a difference to deer and get rid of predators, like it's got to be pretty concentrated at the right time in the right place. So mm -hmm. that's it. That's what we learned 20 some years ago with Mark Hurley. And, and he was in uh, unit 73A and, and uh, 56, uh, basically where Eric Freeman is now. And that that's exactly what they found. They split it into two different areas i can't remember which side of the road they were shooting coyotes on the other side uh, they weren't and, and and that's kind of what they concluded is it has to be intense and targeted you know late may through early july and then if you let off one year those coyotes can bounce right back and and that's when i began to kind of change my thinking on that of because uh, that's what you know mark was kind of learning from this study was he was a research biologist was habitat you know if it costs us a hundred bucks a coyote you know, cause it's not, it's not cheap to shoot coyotes at that level. Right. Um, if it, what, what, what would that money do in purchasing habitat or protecting habitat or improving habitat, you know, because that pays off for a long time that pays off for years where you go shoot a bunch of coyotes. Well, you got to go right back the next year and do them. They're very prolific. They have big litters. They're very, they're very adaptable. And, um, but you know, you start, you start purchasing uh, winter range, critical winter range with that money. And protecting it oh goodness you've ensured deer survival for generations yeah i think a really important thing we've been learning from this research as well speaking to your point on habitat is if you can get fawns fat before winter hits then they have a much higher likelihood of surviving one thing we've found so we've been there's only like a select number of studies where we've collared fawns as newborns, but we've been collaring six month old fawns for a number of years since like 2009, I think. And what we found is that in most parts of Utah, if a fawn is 60 pounds or heavier in December, they have a significantly increased chance of surviving. But for example, in that North uh, East corner of Utah, the cash unit where I've been working, Fawns really need to be 70 pounds or heavier by December in order to survive. And I think that has something to do with, it's just a different climate up there. It's a harsher winter generally on the cash unit than in other parts of Utah. But so what that's telling us, Robbie, is that if we can get fawns fat during the summer, even though we know we're going to lose a few from predation, you know, 
if we can get them fat during summer and we can come into, um, you know, December with roughly 50, 60% survival from what we captured in June as a newborn, then we're really looking good, you know, in the rest of that overwinter survival, that next six month period, we can get them to 60, 70 pounds. Um, they should have pretty good survival. So I think you're right. There's a lot to be said for where are we throwing our money? Do we need to be throwing it at a predator removal or really should we be trying to get these fawns as fat as we can by, by looking at habitat? So. Yeah. And as a caveat to that, when the game and fish um, or a conservation organization owns that habitat, it doesn't turn into a condominium. Right. Well, cool. Jordy. Cool, man. Uh, it makes sense to me. I think you've got the next question. Oh, next one's mine. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, so what I, I realize your, 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 your uh, GPS collar project only goes back to about 2009 uh, for Northern Utah. Do you have anything, you know, even further back from that, that we could look at maybe the long-term survival rate of, of fawns um, in, 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 the, in the units you're working in? And, and, and the reason I ask is because, you know, you just mentioned, you know, if we can get, correct me if I'm wrong, 50 to 60% survival rate on those, on those fawns. Meaning if we, if we check them in December, the ones that we uh, collared in June, if they're still alive, you know, short of some catastrophic, you know, January, February event, you know, we're, we're going to have a stable to increasing deer herd. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So going back 20 years, um, do you see those numbers were traditionally higher than that or lower than that? Or are they just following kind of a, a sine wave of going up and down and you know the average is that 50 to 60 what do you see so we don't really have survival numbers much before 2009 just because survival in itself is hard to get at without callers right but mm -hmm. like you mentioned in your last podcast we do have quite a bit of um fawn doe ratio data back mm -hmm. you know to the 60s even yep and like you talked about, we're kind of looking at two numbers, right? That 50, 60% survival mark mm -hmm. helps us increase populations, but also, you know, that could translate to 50 to 60 fawns per hundred does, right? Right. And for everybody that's confused on that, jump back to my blog or listen to Jordan's podcast that we did about two weeks ago on that. We'll yeah. explain that a little more, but we're, we're with you, Sydney. It can be 50 to 60% survival at six months old, or it can be a fawn to doe ratio post hunting season, which is six months right. of, 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 of roughly 60, correct? Correct. Okay, go ahead. So just to look at that historically, um, and again, like we've mentioned in the past, my knowledge is mostly Northern Utah, but uh, I'm looking at fond doe ratios here right now for the cash unit. And it's been a downward trend since the sixties, which makes sense on a lot of levels, right? I mean, in the sixties, there was a lot, more intense predator removal, like we've talked about. I mean, they were, they were using poison back then. Um, also there was a lot less people, a lot more, uh, winter habitat, better summer habitat, I think as well. Um, so in the sixties and seventies, we're looking at right around 80 fawns per hundred does in that postseason classification. And then we start to get into the nineties and we're down to, you know, 74, 75 and by, you know, 2010, we're looking at 68, 69, which is still, like we mentioned, we're above that 60 
fawns per hundred does mark. So we're still, you know, we have an increasing herd, but it's just interesting to note that there has been a little bit of a, a downward shift in that fawn to doe ratio. But I think really, like we've talked about already in this podcast, you have to keep in mind all the variables that are influencing. I mean, you could also talk about big highways being put in, put in that are cutting off migration corridors, yes. potentially affecting survival. And just like you said, condominiums and people wanting to build right on the mountainside, which is basically the deer's kitchen in, in winter time, you know, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of things influencing that survival and that fond doe ratio that have changed from the sixties to now. So interesting well that's why i wanted to get that out there to give some you know people some context of while 60 percent um survival rate you know we, we may be happy with that it may may sustain us and and or 60 fawns per 100 does that historically we've been higher which just allows your deer herd to bounce back faster from from the inevitable winter kill that we get in these northern states and you know higher predation you know things like that and and, and so for me, it's, it's, it's always about the habitat that, you know, that's why we've got to conserve, preserve, perpetuate habitat in, in any way that we can. So, um, okay. We'll leave that question there. Uh, Jordan, I'm confused. I think the next one's yours. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, and we were just talking about that. So it's a good thing to roll into is habitat and drought effects on the doe and fawn survival. So I, I looked at this in preparation for this podcast, mostly like you mentioned earlier from that. 2009 mark where we started collaring up to, you know, the present year. And I think, you know, you all were hunting during that time period. And so was I, so we'll have a pretty good idea of what was happening during, during winters, but what we see. So for example, in the 2010, 2011 year that the 2011 winter was super hard, hard winter. I remember, especially up here in Northern Utah, a lot of deer died. In fact, we only had 7% fawn survival that year. And then you look at the next year, that 2011, 2012, and you had about 79% fawn survival. So I think what we're seeing there is that really hard winter from January, 2011, you know, to April wiped out a lot of those deer and we had low survival, but because of that heavy snowfall, you know, we had a wetter summer so you saw a huge increase in fawn survival in the 2011-2012 um, year. Mm-hmm. And you can, I just picked that year out because it was one I was familiar with. But we could go across these years from 29 to 20, 2009 to 2020. And anytime that you've got a heavy winter, especially up in northern Utah, it doesn't always translate into the other units, right? Because units down in south, south central Utah may have higher survival doing, during what northern Utah considers a heavy winter because really that's just providing water to those more deserty units in the in the south but but in a in a an environment that really experiences harsh winters when you have a harsh winter you'll see lower survival that year and then the next year you'll probably see a little bit higher survival because there was a lot more water through the summer um which allowed that next crop of fawns to grow a little bit better does that make sense yes it does to me yeah. And, and, you know, rock slide, you know, a big, big following on rock slide are, are mountain hunters. And so we probably better kind of define what we're talking about. What, Sid, what Sydney's, you know, she's based in Northern Utah, you know, the, the intermountain West that I call it, you know, kind of the triple point in Nevada, Idaho, uh, Utah, you know, draw, draw a big circle around that, you know, 
four or 500 miles. That's kind of looking at the Intermountain West. What she's talking about are the pretty much the mountain mule deer um, because the, the desert mule deer are going to be different. They're almost so like what she said, a hard winter up here can be a, a boom for mule deer in the Southwest uh, because of, you know, if we're getting a lot of water up here, it's killing our deer because it's coming in snow. But down there, it's it, it's going to boost fawn production that spring because the browse is in better shape. So, you know, everybody just put their thinking cap on and as we're talking about this and make, make sure you understand, you know, what, what we're applying it to. Um, the, the other thing, too, on, on this, uh, Sydney, was, you know, um, I, I live in a farm in town and, and you know, some, some of the some of the best uh, uh, weather records, I think, are kept by farmers. And it's just right between their ears, you know, uh, because they're dependent on the land and, and, and you know, they remember you know, good years, bad years. And I've had a lot of them tell me that, you know what, you know, these are older guys, they're 70, 80 years old. They're like, you know, we, we were in a drought from 87 until arguably just the last few years, kind of when we started getting into the hard winters of 10, 11, we had another one, uh, uh, 16, 17, you know, we've had a lot of water, you know, we've, we've just been a little bit wetter. And so, but, you know, through the nineties, and, you know, mid, into the 2000s, we had a few good years in there. But, you know, for the most part, we, we were in drought. You look at the drought monitor uh, map, and it was always yellow or worse. And, and, and then when I would, like, talk to people like you, Sydney, and, you know, all the other different biologists in, in, in the different states, fawn production was down. It was, it was harder for those deer to get up and going uh, during drought. And... And so, you know, right now with, with, especially, you know, in the Southwest with, with birds, do, you know, seemingly doing well, I don't have all the numbers, but most of the people you talk to down there, you know, buck to doe ratios are up and bond to doe ratios are up and, you know, and I'm not just talking on the Arizona strip. Um, well, we got water now. So, so water's huge. Um, and so, so that, that's kind of why that question was on there uh, for you, Sydney. Sounds like you agree. Yeah, definitely. You know, from my personal experience, just in those few years working up on the cache, the very first year we started was 2018. So we caught fawns in June of 2018. It had been a relatively mild winter, and then we had a really dry summer. Uh -huh. And in 19, right? In 2018. The, the summer 18, in 18 summer was the dry summer? Yeah, correct. Gotcha. Okay, gotcha. And, um, those fawns just had a really hard time because they didn't get fat before they made it to December. So, you know, I think combining what you just talked about, this kind of anecdotal evidence that you have from these farmers that are really focused on water, obviously that's the, kind of their livelihood, whether it rains or not. Um, combine that with some of the wildlife science we have that looks at, you know, how, how fat a fawn needs to be to survive the winter and and that translates back to how much water there was during the summer. So I think that's definitely a good point. So everybody do a rain dance if they want more <laughs> mule deer. That's right. <laughs> awesome. Okay. I think we covered that one. Yeah. Uh, let's see. It looks like um, th this question may have answered itself with these previous five, mm -hmm. but it basically, is there anything we haven't talked about that would increase spawn survival? So when I read this question, I wanted to throw back at you realistically or unrealistically, how could we increase fawn survival? Because like we've talked about, there are so many things and, you know, we've really hammered in, in this podcast that habitat's important, getting deer fat is what's important, right? But I think um, 
equally as important and something we need to think about as we move into the future is how can we stop encroaching on deer habitat? And by that, I mean, not just how can we not build condominiums in winter range, but also, I mean, now more than ever, more than when you started hunting as a kid, Robbie, we've got side-by-sides and four wheelers and, Mm. and uh dirt bikes everywhere running constantly year round and if it's, there's snow there's snowmobiles there's people out shed hunting i mean and also one thing that i've been thinking about recently is is some of our hunting technology a little bit detrimental towards us you know as we move into the future and we're trying to figure out how to help deer survive in this different world that we've really kind of created for them as humans with our roads and our houses and our climate change and all of those types of things. And then we're adding on top of that, that we can shoot a deer or elk at 800, 900 yards. Like how's that influencing what's happening with the deer? I mean, those are just some things I've been thinking about as far as how do we, how do we work on increasing survival? Right. And you're, and you're right. What can we practice? What can we realistically do? And you know, what, what would work, um, fantastically. Oh, well, you know, yeah. Plow up I-15, tear down the condominiums, you know, all that stuff. I, I get that. We can't, we can't do that. Uh, but, but, you know, as, as, as you can see, even before I met you, I'm all about fawn survival. Um, I know that, man, if, if we can take care of that one, it's not that it fixes everything. It, it certainly doesn't, but boy, if you don't have that, you can't fix anything. Am, am I incorrect in that? No, I think that's certainly true. And so what would we do then to, to increase fawn survival realistically? What what can we do right now, 2020, to increase fawn survival? Okay, a couple of things that I thought about in regards to that. And I even talked to, since, as we've mentioned, habitat is such a big deal. I talked to some of our habitat biologists out here and kind of picked their brain. Um, obviously, like we talked about, if we could decrease disturbances a little bit, you know, disturbances both by houses like we talked about, you know, by protecting lands, by buying them up and turning them into public land where we can, you know, with some of these conservation dollars, or if we can be just conscious as individuals about trying to leave deer alone, you know, when they're, when they're growing as much as we can. But also I think um, one, one big point that one of the habitat biologists made to me was that summer range productivity really changed with the introduction of Smokey the Bear. And let me kind of explain what (laughs) he meant by that. Um, You know, over the last, I don't know how long it's been, 70, 80 years, you know, since Smokey's been around, we've had a lot of fire suppression. And, you know, understandably, people are still, still, a lot of people still think fire suppression is really important. Why? Because their house is on the side of the mountain and they don't Mm want to uh, a wildfire coming close to their house, which is understandable, but in areas where we haven't burned in a long time, the range is just not as productive. You have more of a homogenous understory, which basically means you don't have different age classes of plants. They're all the same age because they haven't been burned. And so you haven't had a chance to get some different age classes in there. Also with this fire suppression, we've had a lot of pinion juniper encroachment and pinion juniper can really wreak havoc on habitat because they're water suckers. That's what they do. And so when you get huge homogenous stands of pinion juniper, 
they suck up all the water from the understory and you can't grow shrubs. So if you've ever looked at like a hillside that's just straight pinion, there's nothing growing underneath there. Nope, you anything. can kneel down and see a hundred yards. Exactly. And that a lot of that has happened since we've seen this fire suppression. We've had an increase in, in cheatgrass, which is an invasive species that just can overtake different areas and it's not highly nutritious. Like sure, deer will eat it when it's green in the spring and nothing else is green because cheatgrass greens up really early but they, it doesn't hold a lot of nutritional value. It dries out fast. And there are other invasive species that have caused a lot of problems. So. And cheatgrass shortens the fire cycle. It just won't let brush get established once it gets in there. Correct. It burn, burn every year. So outside of a lot of the other things we've previously talked about in the podcast, I think if there were ways that we could come up with some, some routine, um, controlled burns mm -hmm. that would also be helpful to our range in sort of mixing up different ages of plants and also helping to grow some of these native nutritional plants that deer need to survive. So it still gets back to, you know, supporting, you know, fire management, habitat improvement. Uh, there was something I was going to throw in there because you were talking about, um, um, you know, protecting the deer when they're vulnerable. That is exactly why I support shed seasons. And oh man, I can hear the guys screaming right now. But those deer are so vulnerable at that time. And this was documented clear back into the 80s and 90s. And Walter Farrell wrote his his series of books that that you know they they were watching uh, you know fawns decline severely on the on the Wasatch just just due to you know dogs and human encroachment and hikers at that critical time. And so you know. People, if we if we want to have a thriving deer herd, something has to give, and that's that's one of the places. You know, I love shed hunting. I do do it, but I try to do it at the times where um, where it's just not affecting the deer because they're so they're so vulnerable. Um, all right, that, I think we I think we got a lid on that one right there, Jordan. Um, you want to run with that next one, or did we already answer it? Um, I mean, I could I could uh, I'll ask it. I do want to say that Robbie came up with most of these questions and you'll, uh, you'll understand why when I say this question. Um, why don't we see 80 to, 80 to 90 fawns per 100 does like we did a few decades ago? And uh, I wasn't alive a few decades ago, so. <laughs> Making me old. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't either, Jordan, don't worry. <laughs> okay, now I feel really old. <laughs> go, go ahead and tell Grandpa why we don't have 80 to 90 fawns anymore, honey. You know, I think we really kind of have hammered this one home, but it's just how much uh, the landscape has changed over the last 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. And okay. also, you know, how, just like you were talking about earlier with the local ranchers in your community, how winters and droughts and, and just water cycles have also changed. I think that's had a big influence on them. So it's some things in our control, you know, some like we talked about human encroachment factors, but also it's things that have to do with the environment that, that are tricky to control too. So. Okay. So what, what do you think Sydney is the future of fawn management? Have we, I think we're, we're, I've been around going from, you know, no collaring at all to 
radio collars where we had to drive around and pick up or fly around in the Cessna with an antenna hanging out the window trying to pick up where these deer are. Now we're at the level of GPSs and you can even tell us the hour when they're born by the, trans the vaginal transmitter telling uh, the, the dose collar that now sends you an email. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that one. Um, you know, that's all, all great stuff that has made, made this data available. What's on the horizon for fawn management? So I think a big one, like you said, because we have, we can so much, we can catch them so much easier than we could previously. A big thing that I think is going to be coming here soon is being able to keep fawns collared from birth throughout their lifetime. And I know we're working on that. And also there's a study happening in Wyoming right now, and I'm sure there could be others in the Intermountain West that I don't know about, but Previously, you know, fawns were collared at birth and then that collar fell off around six to eight months so as not to inhibit their growth, you know, mm -hmm. but um, then they, we couldn't find them again once the collar's fallen off. So you have six to eight months of data on that individual and that's it. But now we collar those fawns at birth and then we're recollaring a lot of them with, with larger collars at six months. And then, you know, as long as they survive, we can keep track of them with those, those bigger, newer collars potentially for their, the duration of their life. So I think that's some of what we're looking at in the future is life history data on deer, not just like, oh, we catch them as one or two year olds and we learn about um, what's happening from one or two years of age through, you know, death. But here we're catching them as, as newborns. And also we have data on their mom you know, from when we collared that mom back in March before she gave birth. So really that's going to allow us to look at things on a, on a different scale. We'll be able to look back in time kind of at that mom's health and then also have life history data on the fawn. And I think that's going to be huge. And also, you know, what's kind of exciting to me, especially as a new, a younger, newer researcher is just the collaborative possibilities that we could look at. I mean, I know Wyoming and Idaho and Colorado, they're all doing their own studies and, and just combining some of that data and looking at things that are happening simultaneously across the Intermountain West. I think that's going to be a real powerful tool for us in, in fawn management and wildlife research in general. Oh yeah. Exciting times, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. Technology is crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. All right, Jordy, I'll let you take the next one. This will be a popular one. Yeah, I'm super excited about this one. Buck collaring study updates. And Robbie and I watched a buck with a collar get shot this year. Yeah. Um, so I can only really speak for some of the things that are happening in the state of Utah. But right now, bucks are being collared as part of our mule deer migration initiative. And we, there's a whole uh, website that the Division of Wildlife Resources has created on this initiative. So I can send that link over to you later, Jordan, for the okay. post with the podcast. But um, yeah, so pretty much what they're trying to learn is a little bit about where these bucks are going, how they're using their home ranges, how they're using migration corridors. And then also along with that, because the collared comes some survival data that we can learn about bucks. Um, I think the tricky thing with collaring bucks that, that hunters maybe don't often think about because bucks are really important to us hunters is that bucks don't really provide a lot of biological importance. Like to be honest with you, they pass on a couple sperm, a baby's born and, and that's their role. You know, 
That's, That's why what my wife said about me. <laughs> Does apply to humans. <laughs> That's why a lot of these studies really focus on maternal effects because that's what's influencing the fawn to a great degree. But, um, and also another tricky thing about collaring bucks and, and trying to get long-term data on them is just what you mentioned, Jordan. We'll collar a big buck and then the next year it gets shot. So to us as a, a management agency, that's like a couple thousand dollars down the drain. I mean, I'm, I'm happy for the hunter. I'm also a hunter and I want to shoot a big buck and if that's the one I've been keeping an eye on and it has a collar, sometimes that happens. But as, as a wildlife manager, you know, my preference would be that you try and leave the bucks with collars in the landscape because that costs us a decent amount of conservation dollars just to get that buck collared. So mm -hmm. that I don't makes know sense. If, that, if that answers your question, but that's some of the things I see when we talk about buck collaring. I mean, there's a lot to be learned, like I said, about migration corridors, home ranges, but as far as like other biological data from bucks, I mean, there's not as much as there is from does, I guess is what I'm saying. Gotcha. Well, this is what I want to know. Um, cause I get a lot of hunters that, that dispute me on this. I I'm, I'm under the, um, the belief based on 30 years of hunting and that, um, there's a fancy word. I learned it from uh, Mike to plan Philopatrick. You know what that means, right? Sydney? Yeah. Okay. So deer, you know, deer return to the same areas, you know, year after year, that's something that's kind of unique to the deer species, but I find bucks are even, you know, they're, they're very, they're, they're home bodies, you know, typically, you know, between the end of the spring migration and the beginning of the fall migration, you know, they're, 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 they're going to be around. And so what I would like to see come from these studies is truly what is their home range during that time? Is it a mile? I mean, I throw that out a lot in my writing and stuff because, you know, just based on bucks I've refound and over the years, it's, it's always been within about a mile. Um, yeah, now that trail cameras are becoming prolific and, you know, I've got hunters I, 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 I trust that have documented up to two miles. And uh, so, but that's still a relatively small area compared, you know, because a lot of hunters just think they just wander the landscape you know, randomly. And, um, and so that, that's just, you know, nothing for you to answer right now. That that's something I would like to see come out of these studies is just how far are these, are these bucks roaming? You know, we know that about does already because we've had the collars on for so long, but I'd, I'd like to see that about bucks. So there is actually some, some research they're working on with that right now. I mean, cause, because we've only recently collared bucks, they're still in the process of some of that analysis, but I can send Jordan another link to a page that's currently being built as a compilation between BYU and the Utah Division of Wildlife, where it's basically like data in real time. So what'll be on that website will be like cause specific mortality of fawns and adults. It'll be survival rates. And there's also um, a habitat section and a movement section, which once they start to get some of that data and now analyze Robbie, it'll be showing things like that, um, home ranges and also like migration sizes and whether or not, you know, we know that in deer, like you said, most of them are home bodies, but some of them are dispersers. Some of them will leave mm -hmm. their natal range and, and find mm -hmm. an area that they like a little bit better. So, um, I can send Jordan that link. It's, it's a website that's still like in the process of being developed and built. So not everything is up there real time all the time, but I know that right now, you know, if listeners were interested and are maybe Utah hunters, they could go in and look at the different units that have collared fawns and they could see cause specific mortality, which just means, you know, what 
specifically is killing them. So whether it's cougars, coyotes, malnutrition, cars, whatever, there's some graphs that show that for both fawns and adults. And it's a pretty cool collaboration that they're coming up with that I think here in not too long, Robbie will have um, some of that data accessible to the public about home ranges and and movements and different things like that. So, oh, we, we would awesome. love to share that with, with Jordan's listeners. That'd be great if you could send that over and, 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 you know, and I'll just, I'll just put it out there. You know, if, if you guys are getting overloaded on the buck studies and you've got any bucks that are in kind of the 30 to 40 inch range that you're just not able to keep track of and, you know, too hard to check on, you know, just, just let me know. I'll make some time. <laughs> I just need the coordinates. I'll, I'll run out there and check on them for you. Um, <laughs> you know, just, just, just to take a hit for the team, you know, help the herd. <laughs> Keep that in mind. Thanks for that, uh, Robbie. Yeah, make sure you pass that on up. Um, so I think with the next question, you kind of answered that, you know, the future of butt collaring studies, you know, maybe maybe the bucks don't provide as, as good a data, um, uh, but it sounds like there is a future to it. It's something you're going to continue to collect data on, correct? Yeah, as far as I know, especially where this migration initiative is concerned, they'll still be collaring um, some bucks over the next little while, so. All right. Cool, so... Before we move to this last question, I have another one I want to throw in. So with this information, how does Game and Fish determine how they're going to shift the tags? Like, is there one major thing that they look at? I know they take everything into account, but um, if that makes, does that make sense? Yeah, uh, I don't think, certainly these survival studies have influenced that to a degree, um, but there's a number of statistics that the fish and game are looking at, which include survival. Um, they're looking at buck to doe ratios, spawn to doe ratios, percent hunter harvest. I, I mean, I think Robbie touched on, on some of this in the podcast yeah. you guys did a couple of weeks ago, but there's a lot of things that factor into it. Myself as a biologist, I'm also keeping track of what we talked about earlier, as far as heavy winters and, and droughts. I know here in the state of Utah, we recently um, redid our mule deer management, statewide mule deer management plan. And one thing they've asked of us in our specific units is to really look at our population objectives. Here in Utah, each unit has a population objective that we're trying to manage to. And some of those were implemented you know, 30, 40 years ago, and it was really just a stab in the dark. They didn't have as much data as we have now. They didn't know how necessarily how many animals the landscape could, could support. And maybe they just threw out a number that was, that was a hope, you know, they hoped that the cache could support 20,000 deer, but they didn't really have data to back that up. So with some of this data we've collected right now, we're looking to revamp some of those population objectives and really try and, and bring them closer to what the carrying capacity of that habitat might be so that when we present our, our population numbers and then subsequently our tag numbers to the public, we can say, look, based on this biological data that we've been collecting for 10, 20 years, we know that this habitat can likely support 15,000 animals. And our recent um, population estimates have been about around, you know, 14,000, 14,500. And, and this is how we're going to, this is the number we're going to start using to help us manage and, and select tag numbers. So, that's some of what we're looking at here in the state of Utah. I imagine other states are similar, but there's a, there's certainly a lot of things that biologists consider when they're trying to come up with permit numbers. And I mean, also another thing I didn't mention would be you're managing different areas on different um, bucks per hundred, different buck ratios, right? Bucks per hundred does. And, and some, 
you have to keep in mind when you think about how many tags we're giving out, whether that unit is more of an opportunity unit or more of a, of a limited entry unit. But again, those are just a number of the different things that we're looking at when it comes to, to tag numbers. So gotcha. Robbie, you want to take the last one? Okay. Yeah, sure. And um, thanks for sharing that too, Sydney. And I think that's one good thing that's coming out all this data West wide is, you know, as I kind of check the pulse of the West as I'm studying deer is that biologists are actively using this data to, to move the ball forward with our, with our mule deer herds. You know, you, you just gave an example of, you know, maybe we thought the cash could do 20,000, but now we got the data to say, yeah, 14 fives our number. And, and, you know, even though that's, that's less dear than what we thought. At least it's a real number that we can work with now. Right. And, and I'm seeing that everywhere. We saw that in the Wyoming range in 16 when um, that deer herd was kind of peaking. And I think it actually peaked in 15. And then we didn't have a hard winter between 15 and 16. But in 16, the deer herd actually had kind of reached its peak and was kind of headed down a little bit. You know, and I'll just throw some numbers out. Maybe it was at 40,000 and the next year it was at 39. When it was like, hey, there's there shouldn't be any reason that it's shrinking. Well, it, it is because it, it met capacity. It's, you know, the habitat is, is, is producing as much as it can. And so, you know, that's, that's good stuff because now that helps us understand that deer herd better. And, and, and rather than just taking a stab in the dark of, Oh, we should have 50,000 deer in the Wyoming range. No, the Wyoming range won't support 50,000 deer unless we build a bunch more highway underpasses and we improve the winter range, which is all good. You know, and, and so, I just want to let everybody know we're not just geeking out on data here. This is stuff that biologists are using west wide to improve and, 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 and better understand our mule deer, which at, at, at the end of the day, that's going to make sure you know, we, we've got mule deer for generations. So my hat's off to you, Sydney. Absolutely. One thing I wanted to throw in with that, Robbie, is I know that um, in the past and maybe for your average hunter, it can be hard to get into some of this science because you know, just pulling up a scientific publication, even for me as someone who's been reading them for years now, um, they can be tough to understand. And I, I just want to throw out to people that now more than ever, agencies and universities are working together on creating websites and podcasts and social media accounts that make wildlife information way more available to your average hunter. Um, I'll send over, like I said, some of these links to Jordan so she can post them in yeah. the podcast notes. But like I said, we have that that website being developed by BYU and the Division of Wildlife here in Utah that's looking at real-time survival and cost-specific mortality, habitat movement. There's also a whole migration initiative page for the state of Utah, and I think Wyoming has one that's similar. Um, the Division mm -hmm. of Wildlife here in Utah has a podcast that often has episodes that the game hunters would be in interested in. Um, a recent one that I learned about was from the from Kevin Monteith's lab out of the University of Wyoming called the Ungulate Compendium. It's a website that we can also link to here that has a lot of good information about ungulates. Um, I know that the BYU Ecology Lab, which is where I got my master's degree, and also, again, I'm pretty familiar with Monteith's lab. They both have Instagram accounts where they're posting you know, understandable data and science for your average social media user. So my big encouragement to a lot of the people listening to this podcast who are interested in really joining in and helping team up with, um, with researchers and with wildlife biologists and with fellow sportsmen in, in really helping our deer herds would be educate yourself, 
And I think we're making that easier now than it ever has been. But also, like we talked about earlier, really get involved with your local sportsman groups. More than anything, those groups are the ones that help us raise the money that help us mm-hmm. grow deer herds. So if you're interested in, in getting out of the bro science and learning something more than Uncle Joe taught you, um, there's a lot of ways to get involved. And I, I hope people recognize that and, and do the work so that we can make deer hunting better for future generations. Mm-hmm. Oh, great, great points. Great points. And for those of you that are out there that are, that are thinking, man, I, you know, I don't know what else I can do for mule deer. Just keep buying licenses because that's how we pay people like Sydney to get out there and take care of our deer. So I want to make sure everybody knows what you're a conservationist if you're buying hunting licenses. Let's wrap up with this question, Sydney. How would Sydney Lamb, if she was king, queen, how would you make better deer hunting? You know, I laughed when you asked me this question, you know, and you sent it to me just because what, what is better deer hunting? It might be different for me than it is for you, Robbie. I mean, Tell us. Is, is better deer hunting more families in big buck camps like I grew up doing and probably a lot of you grew up doing as well? Or is it more Robbie Dennings out there slaying giants in the landscape? I mean, and, and hopefully it's some of both, right? In my perspective, There you go. That's what I think. There would be some of both because I certainly benefited and my career was definitely jump-started by the fact that for one entire week, every October from the day I was born until I was 18, you know, I spent a week every year at butt camp with my uncles and my grandparents. And, and that was a huge part of, is a huge part of who I am and how I came to love mule deer so much. Um, and I think there's a lot of things wrapped up in that that are tricky, you know, some certainly all the things we've talked about here, how we help deer get fatter and how we, you know, help them have better habitat. There's also questions of, you know, wildlife managers and the public coming together to, to not only build deer herds, but to find management practices that we can agree on and that we can help each other in, you know, the reason I bring that up is because often in our postseason surveys, we hear that the public wants more tags yet, when we have our, our public meetings, the only guys we're hearing from are the guys that want to kill a giant every year and they really want higher buck to doe ratios and, and less tags. So it's kind of a complicated issue that I think will take a lot of collaboration between, between different thinkers, you know, but in the end, I mean, if Sydney, if Sydney Lamb could make, could somehow magically wave a magic wand to make deer hunting better, um, I would wave my wand and, and improve habitat as best as I could and get, get deer as fat as they could be coming through summer into those winter months and then find ways where we could have, you know, some units that hold bigger bucks for those guys that, that want fewer tags and want to chase giants all the time and then have some units where, you know, people like little 14 year old Sid could, could go out every year and, and hunt with their families on more opportunity based units. And I mean, definitely one thing I just want to point out, Robbie, that I think could help, especially talking about are we technology-ing ourselves out of the deer hunting game? Jordan, I want to know what you think about this. You think we could potentially get people to donate money to watch towards conservation to watch Robbie like hunt a deer with an adelatl and a loincloth? Yes, 100%. (laughs) And I'll make sure it goes viral. Jordan's been looking for that video opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah for sure. So 
<laughs> I just want you to keep that in mind. Robbie is one of my long-waving <laughs> ways to make you <laughs> better. It could be hey. really great if we could get some footage of you. Hey, Jody, there's two chicks on the phone trying to get me to wear a loincloth. Is it okay? <laughs> we'll see what she says. <laughs> well, hey, great answer, uh, Sydney. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, to, I agree with you. I think deer hunting cannot just, the pendulum can't be all towards trophies. And it, all, it also can't be all towards just massive deer production. Who cares what the buck to doe ratio is? And, you know, uh, you know healthy, healthy habitat sustainable herds i mean to me that's it's our future because if you know if mule deer if, if mule deer are, are are not going to exist in in 30 40 50 years like some of the dooms the doomsdayers say man we have lost an incredible yeah. uh pastime an incredible heritage an incredible species and uh um you know it just it's just sad and that's 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 what i want to do although i fall on the side of yeah i like more bigger bucks um, I, I, it, there's gotta be something for everybody in deer hunting or, or we lose the support. And that's why I mentioned that everybody buy a license, you know, and so support your, 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 your local, you know, game department, because that's, 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 what's going to win mule deer for us. And that's, what's going to keep these herds sustainable. So, so, uh, I awesome. think we'll leave it at that. And, uh, Sydney, great conversation. I, I know, uh, I, I, Jordan's got to, too. We totally appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. And dedicating your time to do this. And Yeah. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I had a great time and I hope, you know, we got some more important info out there about mule deer and mule deer science. So perfect. We did. Hey, thanks, ladies. This was for real. I appreciate it. Sydney, if there's anything else we could ever do for you, let us know. Um, as you get some new data, um, you know, maybe you've got some 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 post-hunting season stuff you'd like to jump on the podcast. Just the, the invite is open. We just need we just need to know what you need and we'll make time for you. Awesome. I appreciate that. Okay. Awesome. Thanks guys. again, ladies. Thank you. See you later.